Have you been to the place where the fireweed grows? The caribou roam and the northern lights glow. Come learn from the people who call this place home. This is Denali 360. Welcome to Denali 360. I am your host, Nova, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to longtime resident of Denali, Nan Eagleson. Nan lived and worked through the Yukon in the Northwest Territories of Canada as a biologist and a naturalist guide before finding her home in Denali Denali. National Park. She resides in Denali year-round with her family, which includes a team of sled dogs. I personally know Nan as an exceptional wilderness tour guide, where I have had the pleasure of hearing her speak about mushing, as well as listening to her extensive knowledge of birds. This unassuming woman is a remarkable breadth of knowledge, topped only by her endless energy and enthusiasm. So welcome, Nan. (laughs) Thank you, Nova. It's lovely to be here. I'm tickled to have you. A lot of people, uh, when I think of Nan, you know, a lot of people uh, are so taken in by all your knowledge of birds. And for some of our listeners that might not be familiar, Nan is also an author of Birds of Denali, as well as a multitude of articles that she's written for various magazines. And she is definitely a bird expert, which is what we're here to talk about today. She was just uh, regaling some of her more recent adventures where she's gone into other areas of Alaska. Tell us a little bit about some of your more recent adventures. Well, I I just recently, uh, yesterday, returned from the Copper River Delta at the Shorebird Festival over there, and uh, parts of it were virtual, but not the birding parts, and it's a remarkable part of the, it's the largest marine estuary in the North Pacific, and this incredible migratory stopover for literally hundreds of thousands of shorebirds, and It's just the most incredible, fantastic part of our natural world. And I'm not sure people recognize just how remarkable migration is. It often goes on all around us with people not even being aware of it. And many of the migrators that I was enjoying there came from as far as Tierra del Fuego or somewhere in Argentina or Uruguay. And... You know, they're flying thousands and thousands of miles to come back here to Alaska to breed and nest, and it is a spectacle to behold. Definitely. Tell me, you were just sharing a great story about the migration of a bird that you hadn't seen very often, or very many species of, I might be saying that wrong. Oh, yeah. No, well, red knots uh, have really taken a hit. And they can be found coming up from as far south as Tierra del Fuego. And I've been pretty avid birder for about 40 years here in Alaska, and I'd only seen a couple. And I got out to Little Egg Island and saw about 300 red knots. And amongst the crew were ruddy turnstones and black-bellied plovers and a big raft of, well, there were just, I couldn't name all the birds but in any case you realize man you are in a special place when you're seeing these birds just arrive and uh, I witnessed the Exxon Valdez oil spill just 11 miles outside my front door in 1989 I was living out Prince William Sound and uh, it was quite depressing and it is just really heartwarming to see that 
this can still continue with all the threats that are so prevalent and especially for a bird that has to fly you know 18,000 miles over the course of the year but anyway it's a real pick-me-up to get out there and see these incredible birds that wing their way north and uh, find a place to refuel like Prince William Sound. Wow what originally brought you to Denali? Well, originally, what brought me to Denali, like everybody, you know, you want to see that charismatic megafauna, you know, all those big grizzly bears and wolves and such. And I uh, I had been uh, working on bighorn sheep in the Rockies, and I wanted to see doll sheep, the only wild white mountain sheep in the entire world. And uh I came up here in 1980 thinking I would be here for about two weeks, and that was over 41 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I had the pleasure of working in the Yukon and Northwest Territories for about seven years, and then I worked a little bit in Africa. And uh, I'm seeing northern weed ears that I know are nesting up in the Arctic tundra, and there they are in Africa. And, you know, I kind of recognized it was as if it was an epiphany this global migration of birds I believe is the most incredible natural spectacle that takes place on earth and it was a way to recognize that every continent plays an important role in protecting habitat for these birds and uh I suddenly went from looking at giraffes and lions and hippos <laughs> to looking at, you know, purple-blasted rollers and uh, hammer cops and, you know, <laughs> and certainly northern weed ears. And uh, it has been my passion, um, and it's what guides every destination I make if I leave Denali. That's amazing. So for a lot of avid bird lovers, as well as somebody like myself that's truly a novice, doesn't know anything about birds, so let me just put that out there. Tell me about some of the species that are common in Denali, as well as what is really unique people might not even know are here. Well, I, we, we kind of have a depauperate bird checklist. I mean, <laughs> after getting back from Cordova, I'm like, well, you know, here we go. You know, we got about 169 species here. Uh, maybe only 26 species that overwinter. But in the summertime, the global migration of birds, it's, a, it's, it's just a light sprinkling of these birds. But you have northern weed ears from Africa and long-tailed Jaegers from the South Pacific and Arctic terns that spent the winter in Antarctic waters. And it's, it, it's just an incredible thing to recognize that because we have been able to protect this little island of wilderness, these birds can still return here with the assurance that at least their breeding grounds are still protected. And it is, for me, just a confirmation that, first of all, conservation works. If you if you protect some areas, you can guarantee that the natural world is fighting hard to continue <laughs> on its uh, path. But, you know, these birds, they have got lots of complications in the fact that to migrate from, say, here to Argentina, 
you've got to encounter all sorts of weather systems and habitat degradation and hopefully their winter habitat hasn't been cut down or polluted or uh, built upon and it's um these birds are truly the canary in the cold mine and if you find that you can protect their breeding habitat that's great but we have to also recognize we need to protect their staging areas, these very important migration stopovers, and to understand where their wintering grounds are. And uh, it's only been the last few years that we've had the technology to really understand where these birds are by putting geolocators on them and hopefully understanding the really important areas if we want to keep this magical Part of our natural world happening. Absolutely. Let's say you're guiding a group for birds in Denali and you're taking them into the park or maybe you're going to another area that you love in the Denali borough. I think a lot of people when they think about this area only think about the park but we know that it's so much yeah. more because we live here and it's our home right but if you were guiding a group into the park and you wanted to give them an amazing bird experience uh, for our viewers or our listeners a lot of times they want to know what's a good time of year to come or where would you take them around the park what would you do well uh that was kind of a lot of questions wrapped up in one know, wasn't it you know there's a <laughs> Uh, well, people like to see ptarmigan. You know, our state bird is the willow ptarmigan. And Denali National Park is like one of the few places in North America where you can see all three species. And that's, uh, you know, the willow ptarmigan are typically lower down and big willows and are, um, you know, right now very actively displaying in May, you know, being very territorial. And you go up a little higher in elevation in rocky alpine tundra, and you've got rock ptarmigan. And then you get up a little higher in permanent snowfields, and you've got white-tailed ptarmigan, which I grew up, uh, you know, in, in the West and in Wyoming, the Rocky Mountains, white-tailed ptarmigan were referred to as mountain grouse. And this is one of the few places where you can see all three species together. And generally, that would be in the wintertime, not in the summer. They're kind of layered like a cake out there in the park in the summertime. <laughs> but um, there's, you know, the thing that's really beautiful about birds of Denali here in May and June is these birds are in breeding plumage. Like you see a long-tailed Jaeger from the South Pacific and... You know, nine months out of the year, it's like this apparition flying out over the sea that you're not going to get a close look. It's not in its breeding plumage. And here, if you come to Denali in June, everything is in its breeding plumage, doing its courtship display, all these wonderful bird songs. Everybody's really territorial. <laughs> and it's pretty darn easy to identify these birds in their breeding plumage, you know, when they're more than just gray and white or <laughs> <laughs> brown. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a and I have to say, the backdrop in Denali is not so shabby either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. there's even days where you see the highest point in North America. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's a beautiful place, you know. Um, it's not hard to discount the charismatic megafauna either. I mean, you might be 
looking for a bird on its nest, but you better be heads up about grizzly bears. You're sharing that habitat with some pretty impressive megafauna. And uh, the fact that 200 acres of this, or 2 million acres of this park is wilderness, and the additional 4 million acres, it's not wilderness, but it has prevented any kind of development. And the fact that we've only got one 92-mile road going through a 6 million acre area makes for a lot of protected habitat. So it's pretty nice to be out there. Tell me your most amazing bird sighting since you've been in Denali. Something that just sort of took your breath away, whether it was rare or where you were or unique or... Probably it would be surf birds, and I had the pleasure of working at Camp Denali for a number of years, which is a remote uh, natural lodge out at the west end of the park near Wonder Lake. And when I lived and worked in the Yukon and Northwest Territories, and I used to work at a little naturalist lodge in the McKinsey Mountains of the Northwest Territories, and uh, I was with the gentleman, Bob Frisch, that found the first... Um, nest of breeding surf birds in the Northwest Territories. And right up until 1926, nobody knew where surf birds went. Like their name indicates, they're typically found within the surf zone of the Pacific, you know, from here to Kodiak to Tierra del Fuego, but nobody knew where they went in the summertime. And many ornithologists right up until the early 1900s said, well, they hibernate down in the mud and in the sand and, you know, in the surf. And native people said, no, they nest on high bald mountains. And it wasn't until 1926 that Joseph Dixon and George Wright uh, found the first surf bird nest in, in North America up on a high bald mountain in Denali called Mount Wright. And uh, sure enough, as the natives were saying, there that's where the surf birds go. Well, I had the pleasure of being with the gentleman, Bob Frisch, that found the first surf bird nest in the McKinsey Mountains. And uh, I worked at a lodge there, a naturalist lodge that at that time was called Old Squaw Lodge. And it was way off the beaten path. And uh, I, Bob Frisch was from Latvia, and he refused to ever use motorized vehicles or like a motorized chainsaw. He lived in the Ogilvie Mountains outside of Dawson, Yukon, and he would cut wood, pile it up along the Dempster Highway and pin a note on it and say, if you want to purchase this wood, send a check to Bob Frisch in Dawson, <laughs> Yukon. And he would ride his bike from the Klondike River into Dawson to do a radio show on classical music once a week, and there he might find a check or not. <laughs> but anyway, the last year that I worked at Old Squaw Lodge, um, I went to pick up Bob and found him dead in his driveway uh, near his bicycle. And he was passionate about all things natural history, but particularly birds. In any case, uh, I had to go on to Old Squaw Lodge. And the day I knew his ashes were re being released in the Ogilvie Mountains, um, I was in the McKinsey Mountains in the Northwest Territories where he had found the original nest. And I went up there where he used to 
brew up a billy of tea on Poppy Ridge and sat down and all these unmated juvenile surfbirds settled in around me and I really felt like that was Bob Frisch's spirit. Yeah, I'm not a woo-woo person, but <laughs> that bird has had profound meaning in my life ever since. And I was so thrilled my first summer working at Camp Denali. I could go up Camp Ridge and I found a surfbird. And for all 13 summers I spent out there, that was the first bird I'd go looking for in May when I would get out there. And they're here in Denali on all those high bald ridges. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. Uh, Talk about some of the different species. We talked about the ptarmigan. Uh, Talk about some of the other birds that you can find when you're traveling through Denali. Well, uh, you look at a little rocky streamside, you're going to find wandering tattlers, and they may be coming from Hawaii, uh, and certainly long-tailed Jaegers that are just this most exquisite bird that uh, is, you know, of the gull family, but you can find them in areas that are kind of alpine, shrubby tundra. And one of my favorite birds, weed ears, northern weed ears, that's the bird that goes from here to Africa. And there's an interesting migration coming into Alaska. Um, The Bering Land Bridge that used to connect Alaska to Asia, during the last glacial episode, it you know it wasn't just a little spit between Nome and the Kamchatka Peninsula. It was a thousand kilometers wide, and it lasted for over ten thousand years. And there were a lot of birds that, um, like waterfowl such as tundra swans and cranes and some ducks, that come up through North America and head across the Bering Land Bridge and will actually nest you know up in that higher portions of Russia and then we've got birds like northern weed ears that come from Africa and arctic warblers that come from Cambodia and a host of birds that come up into that part of Russia and then fly right across what would have been the Bering Land Bridge and to birds like to fly over land right you know, and, <laughs> and uh come into Alaska and uh, pretty fun to see an Arctic warbler in Denali. You know, most birds are getting here in May and maybe early June. And boy, I think the earliest date we've seen warblers, Arctic warblers here is like around June 9th. And you go out Igloo Creek or big tall willows around Stony, and by June 9th, and there they are, you know, <laughs> they, they have this very unmusical G, 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 G. They kind of sound like a chainsaw, you know, in a ways. But, you know, it's just thrilling to recognize they're back, you know. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, Denali's done a darn good job protecting that habitat. Nice. This episode of Denali 360 is sponsored by The Perch Restaurant. Dine with friends in the treetop dining room nestled above the banks of Carlo Creek. Enjoy first-class specialty cocktails on the deck, or feast all your senses on the from-scratch menu. Fresh-baked breads, hand-cut pasta, house-smoked meats, and so much more. Local ingredients prepared with love. Located at mile 224 of the Parks Highway. The Perch. Find food and friends. Call 907-683-2523 for reservations. (music) Thank you.
So tell us a little bit about our state bird, the mosquito. <laughs> well, they're an important source of protein. And these birds that are coming to Denali from literally all over the world are coming here basically for three reasons. To take advantage of 24 hours of daylight so they can feed their fledglings or their young all day long, all night long. Uh, to take advantage of a really high protein diet. Uh, even if they're a neotropical migrant eating fruit all winter long, they need protein to get these young on the wing and flying seven, 8,000 miles out of here. And boy, do we have protein. <laughs> you come here. You know, it's, it's just so cool. The natural world, like on summer solstice, you know, we have 24 hours of daylight and maybe only 21 and a half hours of direct sunlight, but the rest of it's civil twilight. And that coincides with what will be our most robust floral display, which also coincides with our most robust insect abundance. And it also coincides with when most of these little birds are hatching. So that whole intensity that happens around summer solstice is all geared to be able to, you know, the pollinators are out there for the flowers, the insects are out there for the birds to eat, to feed their fledglings. It's all happening in this very timely, incredible manner. And uh, that's one of the great concerns with global climate change is that you know, cycles and systems are being tweaked, you know, and we may have much earlier springs. So the insect, you know, hatches prior to when the birds arrive and, you know, the timing of when the flowers need pollinating and things um, are getting a little out of sync. And so it's a genuine concern for um, the fact that we'll have to see what the long-term implications are, but there's many, many, many studies that are showing that this could be seriously disruptive to these systems, you know, th these systems just can't adapt in the same time frame that climate change is happening, you know? I mean, we have tweaked things where we've changed the chemistry of our oceans and the chemistry of our air and, you know, these temperatures and and precipitation and all these cycles that are getting slightly out of sync, animals in their evolutionary adaptation to change just can't keep up with that pace. And so in the long term, the repercussions could be quite dire, and they already are for many species. For a lot of our listeners, I originally am from the Midwest. And so when I would see summer solstice or winter solstice on a calendar, it didn't really mean anything to me. And it mm -hmm. wasn't until I came to Alaska and I thought at one hour, you know, it was sunny like this. Right now we're sitting in Nan's beautiful log home and we're looking out over her beautiful deck toward the park. And I can remember being out in my car. I was studying something and just wanted a quiet place. And I thought, gosh, I feel kind of tired. And I looked down at my watch, and I couldn't believe it was 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But summer solstice, you know, that June 21st date, mm -hmm. uh, where it's our longest day of the year, is such a different experience when you're here, seeing that energy 
all the ideas that you were talking about with how the animals and you know flowers everything is depending on that and then moving to living here in the winter time for example when you are at winter solstice the darkest day of the year Mm -hmm. so it's interesting how all that is influenced but to witness it as a human was a pretty amazing experience to me uh rather than it just being something on a calendar right right yeah well it's interesting to raise a kid here because You know, you have a three-year-old that you're trying to put to bed at 8 o'clock at night in the middle of the summer. Good luck, you know. But you can get them into bed at 7 p.m. in the wintertime. And, you know, similarly for me, you know, I I just feel like it's sacrilegious to go to bed before those long extended twilight hours in the summer. But, man, fine with me, you know, at 9 o'clock, yeah, it's bedtime in December. So it's very biological. It's just that most of us live lives and routines that don't allow us to adapt to that, you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's really um, it's a cool thing to watch with your kids to see how they're, you know, before you have to send them to school and put them on that school bus at 7 a.m., you know, which is god-awful, you know, which is one of the reasons I homeschooled him for a while because it was just so out of sync with the biological rhythms of a kid, you know, and myself, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it's profound, you know, Mm -hmm. that amount of sunlight in our daytime and, I love those twilight hours in in Denali in the winter. From here, our sun is only about 11 degrees above the southern horizon, but uh, on winter solstice, and you know Denali's on the north side of the Alaska Range, so there's a lot of big peaks that intercept <laughs> that low angle light. So what you see are these alpenglow peaks and if there's any kind of moonlight at night, you see so much light reflected off the surface of the snow that you can pick out features a mile away. It's spectacularly beautiful, but it's very, um, you know, there's not many BTUs <laughs> to that sunlight, but it's a beautiful time of the year here. The older I get, I think I mentioned this earlier, the more I feel like I have reverse seasonal affective disorder in that <laughs> I just love the slow pace of winter and the long contemplative hours of twilight where, you know, there's a long, slow sunrise and a long, slow sunset. And if you're standing in the right place between a couple of peaks, maybe in a big U-shaped glaciated valley, you might get... 40 minutes of direct sunlight <laughs> but uh it definitely creates a different mood and mindset and uh it's a it's a privilege to be able to be here year-round and see these cycles and these beautiful days and nights and twilights and migration and to know that we still do have wolves and grizzly bears any landscape that can protect some of those major predators that have been exterminated on most of our planet that you know that you're living in a good place if they're still here in healthy numbers and it's a privilege to live on this part of the planet right now here (laughs) if you were to give advice to somebody visiting denali for the first time 
They don't know what to see or they've just been told things from tour books or somebody. What would your advice be to that first person stepping into this wonderland? Well, I would I would recommend that they take a moment independently from the bus tour or the tour group or or whatever mode of travel they have and just walk out on the tundra and it's a Persian tapestry of flowers and mosses and beautiful, beautiful vegetation and just listen to the bird song and listen to the the, the silence and you know, you can see that tallest mountain in North America and this fragile little fern that is growing and has this beautiful mossy bed that a little bird may have nested in and find that this is a land of extremes, not just from daylight, you know, 24 hours of daylight in the summer and only four in the winter and, you know, temperatures that are extreme. The env- Everything, the environmental conditions are extreme. But so is the contrast of the fragility of the plant life and the bird life and the geology, the mountains and, you know, these glaciers that we just think are these giant masses of ice, they're fragile too. I mean, they're melting by the day, they're retreating, and everything is in a constant change of flux. And to be there in the moment, just within that natural surrounding is, it's really inspirational. And I think that the contrasts in Denali are subtle and yet really overt and you can really get lost at a multitude of levels at just the beauty of the natural world that's out there. Nan has written Birds of Denali and she talks a little bit about the illustrations by David Allen Sibley. Well, as anybody that's in the bird world knows, in North America, he's the preeminent bird artist, and his field guides are just unparalleled. He's spectacular. And and uh, we decided, let's go big, you know, and see if Sibley would want to illustrate our little birds of Denali. And we were feeling intimidated by asking this incredible person to illustrate it, so we sent him a copy of the book and the fact that each species had included with it a conservation status, he found to be really moving and because he's so dedicated to avian conservation, he said that he would do these illustrations for free. And that <laughs> upped the <laughs> the credibility of this book exponentially. So, yeah, the fact that it's illustrated by Sibley is a real bonus for sure. Thanks, Nan. Thank you. My pleasure. Denali 360 is a production of Denali 360 LLC. Interviews are edited by Josiah Robinson. Theme song written and recorded by Jonathan and Brooke East. Special content and sponsorship recorded by James Rio. I am your host, Nova Cunningham. 
For more information on Denali Park, Alaska, go to Denali360.com.